kind of feels like the Grinch movie. Like, is your heart starting to like grow and soften? Well, let's see what God's word can do. If you have your Bibles, open them to Joshua chapter two. Joshua chapter two. It's the sixth book of the Old Testament. As you turn there, we started a series last week called A Sacred Scandal. And the whole purpose of this series for Advent is that we've been looking at the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And Matthew talks about all the parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents of Jesus, his whole family tree, his lineage. And what we notice as we look into Matthew's lineage is that there's some scandalous characters in the story. In fact, Matthew intentionally, it seems, chose to include some of the most scandalous stories of the Old Testament in the family tree of Jesus, even when he didn't have to. And so we're visiting each of those stories to discover what does this story have to do with Christmas? What does this story have to do of the coming of Messiah? And what can we learn? Why is this story so significant? If you are here last week, Austin Payne, our new high school director, opened up uh, Genesis and talked to us about the story of Tamar, uh, which he said was a, a sermon that was somewhere between PG-13 and R, and he was right. Uh, and so I was talking to a family today who said, hey, I brought my kid into the service. Is it the same as last week's service? <laughs> not as much, not as much. Uh, this story includes some uh, scandal, but not the same kind of scandal as last week. This is the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter two through Joshua chapter six. Have you ever had a moment in life where it became abundantly clear that it was time for a change of direction. I was thinking about my own life and I had this memory from high school flash before my eyes. I was a senior, I think, in high school. I was coming back from the movies late at night, Highway 580, driving from Dublin back towards Castro Valley. And so I was gonna get off here at the church exit. That's what we call it here at the church, the church exit. And, and as I was starting to make my way towards the right lane, this what kind of car was it? A Mustang or a, what's that kind of car they don't make anymore? A Camaro was like coming up and it was started coming super fast on the on-ramp and, and started merging into my lane. Like I had three other people in my car and I look over and this guy's like about to hit my side view mirror. And so I'm 17, I'm not great at driving, but I don't know what I would have done today. I just cranked my steering wheel to the left and my car started spinning instantly. So everyone in my car just starts screaming. It was like a movie. Like, and I'm looking around, I'm seeing them screaming, we're spinning. And I'm like, how do you drive? How do you drive? So I start turning my wheel the other way. And then we spin two directions left. And then we spin once to the right. And everyone's still screaming. The Camaro's gone. And then finally, like, we stop in the middle of the freeway. And my car is dead, and I turn the key. It's like kind of lurching, nothing's really happening. I'm like, oh no, oh no, oh no. I'm gonna be stuck out here all night. And then I look up, and I see all of these white headlights just coming at me, coming from the other direction. And in that moment, it became abundantly clear that I desperately needed a change of direction. <laughs> you can... Uh, you could ask your parents about this one, but I realized my car was not broken. I was just like in fifth gear. And so I, I dropped the clutch, I popped it into first, and my car started fortunately, and I got off the freeway and, and saved my own life and my friends' lives. And, um, 
But, but that feeling, right, that, that need to change of direction feeling stuck with me, right? The breathing fast, the heart beating, the sweating, the like, oh, no, 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 no. Because there has been several times in my life since then that I've experienced the same emotion. I remember my first day of college. I was going to orientation at UC Berkeley, and I drove the same car. And I went and I made a right turn from college onto Bancroft Avenue, which is a one-way street in the other direction, right? Same thing, and see all these cars coming at me. I look over, I see a cop who's like looking at me. I'm like, like this. So I pull into this driveway. Ironically, I would eventually live at that house. I pulled on the driveway. I pull into the driveway. The cop pulls in right behind me to keep me safe and give me a ticket. And um, <laughs> it was actually my birthday, and so he didn't give me a ticket. But, uh, but it's the same feeling. Like, oh, no, 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 no. It's time for a change. I think about that on Sundays. You know, today we have our meet and greet after the service. If you're new, we'd love to meet with you in the middle of the lobby and, and I'm gonna have a change of direction moment because I'm gonna leave this platform. I'm gonna go out the side. I'm gonna go around and I'm gonna make my way to the center of the lobby while about a thousand of you are pouring out of the room and I feel like a salmon swimming upstream and everyone's coming at me and everything in me is saying, just go with the flow. Don't go this direction, but I have to push through, right? So if I push you out of the way, I'm sorry. I gotta do it. That's the feeling you get in, a, in physical life when a change of direction is necessary, but, but I would argue that the very similar is the feeling we get in life when a figurative change of direction is necessary. I had the same emotional reaction when I was in college, and I went on a trip, and in the middle of like nowhere, right, just out of the blue, I felt like God tapped me onto the shoulder and said, Danny, I... I know that you're heading this direction with your life, you're applying to business school, you've got these plans for your future, but I want you to change directions and I want you to go into the ministry. And I remember, same thing, right? My heart starts beating. I'm, you know, it's like I could see the headlights coming at me, like God is saying, you're going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way. And, and I tried to get rid of it, I tried to ignore it, right? I tried to like turn on the car and then drive through, but God is like, nope, 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 nope. And finally, I relented, I took a U-turn and I took my life in a different direction. It's funny, sometimes the physical realities can mirror the, the figurative or the spiritual or the emotional realities, right? Because there are times in life when God makes it clear that a change of direction is necessary. I don't know if that resonates with you today. Maybe you're here today and that's what you've been wrestling through all weekend, that God is tapping on your shoulder and saying it's time to step into a new relationship or it's time to reconcile this old one. Or it's time to step into a new business or move to this new place or drop this relationship or enter into this endeavor or whatever it is. And, and the longer you wait and you hope God's going to just get off your back eventually, instead, it's like he's still driving towards you. His divine headlights are in your face and you feel like, if I don't change direction soon, I don't know what God's going to do. Sometimes he makes it abundantly clear that it's time to do something New. In those moments, when God is starting to make it clear that a change of direction is an invitation he has before you, the question I want to ask of the text of Scripture today is this, how do we find the courage to make the necessary changes God is inviting us into when it's time for a change of direction? I've talked to several people these last couple months who are in a season of life where God's inviting them to change the direction of their vocation or a relationship status or what have you, and and the conversation always moves from the logistics and the tactics to the fact that this change is scary and risky and I don't know if I can do it. And so as we look at the story in the book of Joshua, that's the big question we're going to ask is, when it's time to make a change, where do you find the courage 
that is necessary to trust the Lord in that moment. And Joshua is a great book to use to talk about courage. The theme of Joshua is be strong and courageous. God says it to the Israelite army over and over and over again. Now, this is a book, if you've never read Joshua, that's uh, controversial because it's a book about judgment. It's a book where God is inviting his people into the promised land, but in order to do that, they become his arm of judgment on this sinful, heinous group of people called the Canaanites. And we'll talk about them in a moment. Kind of like the Noah story in Genesis 6 where God floods the planet or the Sodom and Gomorrah story later in Genesis where God breathes down fire on a civilization. Now God in Joshua is raising up his people to bring destruction on a city that is, is destroying the earth. And so God says to his people that this battle is in front of you, so be strong and courageous because after 40 years in the wilderness, you're gonna cross the Red Sea and you've got a hard job in front of you. But the spotlight today is not on the army. It's not on God's people. It's on a very unexpected character we see in the genealogy of Jesus, a woman named Rahab. She's known throughout the Bible as Rahab the prostitute, who found herself in the city of Canaan, in the country of Cana, in the city of Jericho, face to face with a couple of spies from the Israelite army. And as she hears that judgment is coming at her city. She's got a big decision in front of her. Do I run? Do I hide? Do I alert the authorities? Or do I throw myself at the mercy of these people and say, please save me, right? She, she has a decision in front of her where everything's about to change and she needs the courage to do what is right. And so we'll start by reading off the, the first three verses of Joshua 2. You can read along with me to kind of set the tone of how this all got set up. This is the story of Rahab. It says, then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who've come to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman who had taken the two men, or the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but, but I don't know where they come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of the flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. This is God's word. If we take a note today, you'll see that the, the first thing on your note page is a, a fill in the blank. Rahab was blank. And before you fill in that blank, I want to ask you a question. Knowing what you know about the story or what I just read, how would you put it, fill in that blank? Right, the easiest like Sunday school answer would be Rahab was a prostitute, right? Don't write that down because that's not the right answer, although it's true, right? That shows up all, all over the Bible. She's referred to that here. That's her vocation. Somebody asked me after the first service, why did the spies go to her house? Like that seems a little scandalous. And history tells us and the story tells us that the, the home in which she worked, the brothel most likely, was built into the gate of the city. And so most likely her life consisted of strange visitors coming to the city 
entering into her home through the city gate where she would provide hospitality and the type of service that's offered at a brothel and then send them on their way. And so this was kind of the, the way that someone would go from the outside of the city to the inside of the city could be through her home. And so she was the, supposedly the giver of hospitality of the city, but in a, in a region of the Canaanites where they were filled with all kinds of evil, hospitality doesn't look like hospitality, it looks like a brothel. So Rahab was a prostitute. Uh, we see that here. We see it in James, we see it in Hebrews. But I think the more scandalous thing in the story is that Rahab was a Canaanite. Don't write that down because there's more, but Rahab was a Canaanite. Uh, the Canaanite people were, were the people who were currently under the judgment of God for heinous practices, right? Things like normalizing prostitution, things like having brothels in your city wall, things like having sexually scandalous things happening throughout your city, things like demon worship and idolatry, things like infant sacrifice, things like violence and murder, right? This is what the Canaanite people embodied. And so even more scandalous than Rahab's vocation was the people with whom she affiliated. Rahab was a Canaanite. But what I I do want you to write down is not merely that she was a prostitute, not merely that she was a Canaanite, but, but what all of that symbolizes. Because as God's people were coming towards her with violence to, to tear down the city walls, and that's where her house was, and, and raise the city What Rahab found herself was in a place where she was in the crosshairs of God's judgment. His force of judgment was coming at her. And so what I do want you to write down is this, that Rahab was in desperate need of a change. In desperate need of a change. And not merely a change of vocation, right? Not a change of of nationality, a change of of everything. She had to run, hide, fight, find a way to get out of this predicament because the way she had been living her life would result in her death in just a few days if she didn't make a huge change very quick. I don't know if anyone in this room is is facing a change, a potential change that is life or death. Sometimes we, we face that. But I think many of us have faced seasons in our life where we found ourselves in desperate need of a change. And sometimes it happens quickly. I would think a lot of times when we find ourselves kind of in desperation, it's because the thing that has been happening to us has been growing and growing and growing over time. God whispers into your ear at some point, hey, you need to make a change in this area or it might be trouble later. You're like, eh, and you don't. And then it's like, you should make a change in this area because trouble's coming. Eh. Hey, you should make a change in this area because you're about to lose everything. All right. And over time, this need for change becomes heightened aware in front of you. And eventually you're standing face to face with a hard decision. You're wondering, do I have the courage to do what I need to do before it's too late? Rahab became acutely aware that a change was necessary. And just like it happens in our own life, as we read the, the next paragraphs of the story, we see that Rahab's knowledge of a need for change had been growing over time. She shares, I'll read this and just kind of set you up to understand it. She, she shares a number of things. She says, our people have, have heard of your God and your people. We heard that you've been wandering in the desert for 40 years after God parted the Red Sea miraculously. We heard that you worship a God who can do miraculous things. 
We heard that your army was getting close to us and we started getting nervous about that. We heard that you want to come for us and the God that's part of the Red Sea is directing your armies. We've been trembling with fear because we know you're getting closer. As we read these verses, you'll see that the stakes have been getting higher and higher as time has continued to go. And so I want to read the next few verses. And I would love for you to pay attention as I read these to to this theme of courage and fear in verses 8 through 13. So Rahab has hidden the spies on her roof, and then it says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, and other wicked people, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. This is her speech to the spies, which I think when we hear the speech, it's it's a beautiful speech, but I think a lot of times we don't realize just how high stakes this speech was, right? This is Rahab standing before two men who are about to destroy, have given the mandate from God to, to kill every man, woman, and child in the city within. And now she's standing before them pleading for her own life. She could run instead of having this conversation. She obviously had some sort of conversation with the king. She could have said, hey, king, they're right here. Save me and then get me out of this town immediately. But instead, she makes a decision where she turns her back on her own country And she stands before the enemies of her own people and almost says, hey, I want to join you guys. Please spare me from the wrath that is to come. And this is the 11th hour. The spies are in her house. The army is right on the other side of the river. And she exerts the courage to throw herself at the mercy of God and his people and say, please save me. And what I wrote down in my notes, I'll invite you to write down in yours when I read this, is that one of the things we learn in this story is that it's never too late to make the change that God has invited you into. It's never too late. Should Rahab have become a Christian or a follower of God's people earlier? Sure. Should she have worshipped Yahweh the moment she heard about him? Absolutely. But now that she's at death's door almost literally and the armies are right out the outside and the, the spies are in her living room or on her roof, She throws herself at their mercy, and we know that she finds success in her plea. It's never too late to make the change God is inviting you into. And you might push back on that statement and say, well, I don't know, because, you know, I've got this friend, or in my life, I didn't make a change, and eventually it was too late. Okay, I'm I'm not saying you have unlimited time to make whatever change God is inviting you into. What I'm saying 
is that when you're in the place that it changes in front of you and you feel like God's c- compelling you to step into it, but your excuse is, God, I think it's too late. I think it's, I can't work it anymore. I don't feel like it's even possible anymore, but he's still telling you, do it anyway. And you're saying, no, God, it's too late. That's the moment that I would love for you to hear these words, that it's never too late to make the change God is inviting you into. That's a powerful truth. A few weeks ago, we had our Celebrate New Life service. How many of you guys were here for our baptisms a few weeks ago? It's a powerful Sunday. In the nine o'clock service, we had a guy who came up here, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but I remember this one part. He was, he was sharing his story and how he's a little bit embarrassed that he was coming to faith at a later age, and his son was in the audience here, and he said, you know what? He kind of ended the story and said, what I want everyone to know is that it's never too late to give your life to Jesus Christ. I want my son to hear that. I don't want my grandkids to hear that. I want everyone to hear that even me as an old guy, right? And he wasn't even that old. As an old guy, I thought it was too late. It's, it's never too late to make the change that God is inviting you into. Now, these last few months, this has been a season where I've talked to a lot of people about transition in their lives and God kind of compelling them into things that are new and and I've actually gotten to use this phrase a, a lot with people. I was talking to a guy who was in a relationship, and he loves his girlfriend, and they've been together for a long time, and, and yet over the last season, it's become increasingly aware that they're on different pages spiritually. And he, he's fallen in love with Jesus. She's kind of on a, a different path, and it's like, this is so hard because I'm growing in my faith. She's growing in the faith that she has, but we're growing Apart, And I just feel like if we decide to take the plunge and get married, we're going to be raising very confused children and be facing a lot of issues in our marriage. And I, I kind of feel like God is inviting me to, to break up with my girlfriend, even though I love her, just because we're not on the same page and we just can't see eye to eye on this very important issue. He said, but I just wonder, is it too late? We've been together so long. I don't want to be a jerk, but I feel like this is what God's calling me to do. And I'm like, hey, it's, it's never too late to make the change God is inviting you into. I talked to another guy who's uh, in the midst of a career change. And he said, oh, man, I've been at this company for a long time. And just I feel like God is telling me it's time to turn over a new leaf. But there's so much risk. And, you know, if you've ever had to go through that, there's so much involved in that. Just wonder, maybe I missed the window. Maybe I'm, I'm too late. And yet I feel like God is calling me to do this. What do I do? I'm like, well, I can't tell you what to do. But I can, can tell you that it's never too late to make the change that God is inviting you into, right? Not because that's just like a nice little platitude, but because he who promised is faithful, right? If God invites you to do something, he's gonna do the heavy lifting to get you to the other side, right? If if he's not the one telling you to do it, you shouldn't do it, right? But if God's inviting you to do something, it's never too late to make the change, right? And yet, as a pastor, I've also had a lot of conversations with people on the other side of of changes they didn't exert the courage to make, and now they're lamenting, I should have made that change, and now it is too late. I was thinking about a guy who um, was part of our church a while back, and I got a call from his wife one day, just devastated, um, because she found out that her husband had stepped out on her with another woman and kind of left her and their baby in the lurch and... I said, well, what what do you want me to do? She said, I just wish, he's not answering my calls. I I just want him to know that it's not too late, that that I can forgive him. We can work through this. Like, don't leave your family. 
And so I, I grabbed another one of our pastors. We called him. He didn't answer. We went down to his house. His car was there. We're knocking on the door. We're knocking on the windows. We, we're about to like break down the door and get in his house. And, and finally he calls us back and he's like, I went on a walk. We're like, we're going to find you. So we went and found him. And, and we sat down with this guy and, and we're like, we, right, bad news. That was stupid. Um, good news. You're ready to be done with it. We love to hear that. And better news. Your wife is willing to take you back. He's like, no, no, it's. I've done too much bad stuff. She'll never take me back. I promise you, I've got a connection with the source. She told me she'd take you back. And he's like, no, it's just, it's over. There's no coming back from this. I'm like, it's not over, right? And, and so, you know, days turn into weeks, turn into months, and it's like we can't convince this guy that his wife is ready to forgive him. And, and meanwhile, the window just starts, does start to close, right? Months go by, she moves away, she meets somebody else. She ends up getting married, right? And there were moments in that where, where he started thinking, well, maybe I should go try to get back with my wife. But at that point, it was too late. She moved on. Right? So again, I'm not saying you have unlimited time. But, but when the window is open and God is tapping on your shoulder and saying, it's time to make that change. When you say, no, God, it's too late. When this guy said, no, Danny, it's too late, I can say with a clear conscience, it's never too late if God is inviting you into it. Now, the biggest difference I see between the people who like, took that step into change and people who didn't and regretted it was in the moment, it's the inability to find the courage to make the necessary change. And so I do want to go back to the question we started with. When you find yourself at a crossroads in life, and God is compelling you to make a change, where do you find the courage to make the change that God is inviting you into? And I want to look at the text that we just read to find the answer to that question. And the first time we read it, I asked you to look to courage and fear in this passage. This time I want you to look at the source of Rahab's courage, where it came from as we read the text. This is just, what, four verses of the scripture, but in every verse she says the same thing. In verse 9, Rahab says, I know the Lord has given you this land. In verse 10, Rahab says, We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. In verse 11, she says, The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. In verse 12, she says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. If I were to ask you, just based on this text, where did Rahab find the courage to make the change in front of her? Oh, how would you answer? You can say it out loud. It's the Lord, right? And so the answer for us, thousands of years later, is the same, right? Rahab found courage to change by trusting the Lord. And if you're looking for courage to make the change God's inviting you into, the courage comes from trusting in the Lord. Now, Rahab no, had no ability to save herself. She had to trust these spies. She had to trust her enemy. She had to trust her king wouldn't have her executed for treason. But ultimately, she's not talking about her trust in any of those entities. She's talking about the Lord. And she says, I know this is a good decision because your God is the God. And I need to be on his side of this battle. And so Rahab throws herself at the mercy of God's people, says, I, I want to be with you. I want to be on God's side of history. And as we continue to read the story, we see that the decision that she made, the courage that she took up, was the best decision she could have ever made. Now, you turn a couple pages to the right, we can read the end of the story in 
chapter 6, verse 22. All right, these spies go back. They tell the crew about Rahab and about the city and what they found out there. And then Joshua, who's the leader of God's people at this point, says, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers, her sisters, all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. I love that part, to this day. You know, if you want to write something down that, that I, I hold dear from this text, you can write this down, is that God delights in fully redeeming those who place their faith in him. God delights in fully redeeming those who place their faith in him. If you're looking to save some time and just write redeeming, don't. Fully redeeming those who place their trust in him. Our Jewish tradition uh, tells us that Rahab ended up marrying one of these two spies. We don't know if that's true or not. That's tradition. But, but what we do know is that she did end up being grafted into God's people and marrying someone because generation after generation after generation, her name shows up in the Bible as one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus, the Messiah. God fully redeemed her. We look at Rahab's story. If you want to turn to Hebrews, which is like the third to last book in the New Testament, it might not actually be, I just made that up, but it's, it's close to the end. In Hebrews 11, the hall of what? Faith. Verse 31. The author of Hebrews says, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She's a model of faith for generations to come. Turn the page to the right, two pages, to James chapter 2, verse 25. James, when he's talking about people who don't just have faith but do something with it, he says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Right, this woman who came from a vocation that was uh, not a holy vocation, not a holy line of work, to say the least, who came from an unholy people, was redeemed by the Lord in such a way that not only was her life spared, not only did she become a believer, not only was she grafted in among God's people, not only did God use her and, and her womb to bring forth uh, the child of promise, the Messiah, Jesus, but God uses her over and over as an example of someone who has faith and who puts their faith into work for generations to come. Billions of people have been affected by Rahab's courage to make one change in her life that changed the world forever. That's what I mean when I say that God delights in fully redeeming those who place their trust in him. The last thing that I notice in this passage you can write down as well is that God is able and faithful to rescue anyone who's ready to turn to him in faith. Able and faithful to rescue anyone who's able to turn to him in faith. And the reason that that came up to me is so I kept asking myself as we read this passage together as a team, and as I studied this personally, why was Rahab's contribution such a powerful story? Right? We don't find out that she told the spies any piece of information that saved the Israelite army. 
she didn't cause the victory over Joshua in the battle of Jericho. She, her disobedience would have stopped the victory. God was going to win that battle, right? They march around the walls. They come tumbling down. The only person Rahab saved was herself by her actions. So why is she such a remarkable person? Why is that story such a memorable story in the history of God's people? And I don't know for sure, but, but my guess is this is that when we read a story like the Canaanite conquest or Noah and his ark or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we always ask questions like Abraham asked in that question, God, how how can you kill an entire civilization? What if there's someone righteous in there? Won't you save a righteous person? And right in, in the Noah story, God saves Noah's family, the only righteous people. In Sodom and Gomorrah, he saves Lot's family, the only righteous people in the whole town. We start learning the story that if there is someone righteous, willing to turn to God in faith, he will do anything to rescue them from the wrath that is to come. And that includes not merely Noah, not merely Lot, these important people in the history of God's people, but a Canaanite prostitute like Rahab. The message of the story is that if there is one person in an entire city, no matter how sinful they are, no matter what their past is, no matter what their nationality is, no matter how opposed they've been to God their entire lives, God will stop an entire army to extract one family to save them from the destruction that is to come. Right? God is willing and able to rescue anyone who turns to him in faith. I love Joshua 6, where it says that they destroyed the entire city except they saved the gold, the silver, and Rahab. Every precious thing in that city was spared. You might be a sinful person. You might consider yourself an unclean person. You might think, you know what, my family has turned their backs on you for generations, God. So who am I to turn to God in faith? Why would he even listen to me? That's the story of the Bible is that God is willing and able to rescue anyone who turns to him in faith. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons that the Rahab story is in the Jesus lineage, because Rahab was a glimpse of the nativity story that was to come. And the whole Christmas story is that as God looks down on the earth and he's grieved at the sin and the destruction and the chaos, he doesn't just throw down fire and burn us all. He He creates an extraction plan, a rescue plan for anyone who would turn in faith. And that plan involves not merely sending a spy, but sending his own son, who would come and visit this place and share the gospel and and give a glimpse of the kingdom and invite anyone who is willing to follow after him. He sacrifices his own life so that anyone who needs forgiveness can find forgiveness. He raises from the grave, preaching a message of reconciliation, saying, come and follow me, anyone who is willing, and you can find forgiveness and life in my name. And for the rest of time, anyone, regardless of their national background, religious background, lifestyle background, can turn to the Lord and find salvation instantly because God is willing and able to rescue anyone who turned to him in faith. Or maybe that's you today. All right, if you end today and you've got a a decision in front of you, and God is tapping on your shoulder saying, it's time for a change of direction, it's not too late. God delights in fully redeeming those who place their trust in him. If you find yourself today, you're saying, I don't even know Jesus, right? But, But I want to. God is willing and able to rescue anyone who turns to him in faith, including you. 
And we're going to close our time with the communion meal today and, and how fitting it is that at the end of this message, this story, we break this bread together. Because we're reminded that when Jesus came to visit us, he did not merely just come to bring us good cheer or tidings of good joy, but he came to offer his life as a ransom for many. The, the reason that God can rescue us when we turn to him is because his judgment has already fallen on the one who held back the gap so that we could cross. And so as we prepare our communion elements, which you're welcome to prepare at this time, if you are a believer in Jesus, this meal is for you. If you're new to faith, maybe this is, today is the day that you're turning to Christ for forgiveness. This meal is for you. If you still are outside the family of God, looking in, wondering, this meal is not for you. And this time is for any of us who have found salvation in Jesus Christ as a significant moment where he gives his grace to us as we remember his given body and shed blood on the cross on our behalf. We turn to this bread and we're reminded of the night that Jesus was betrayed. When in the midst of a meal with his disciples, he took bread like this and he blessed it and, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. This is my body, he said. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In that same meal, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup together. Let's pray together. Jesus, your word tells us that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death. Let us proclaim, if we proclaim nothing in our lives but this, let us proclaim that by the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have forgiveness in life. You tell us that when we do this, we remember you, this covenant with you, what you did for us, and we remember that today. But the taste of this bread and the taste of this cup sink within us let us be reminded that we are powered by Christ alone. Let us be reminded that Christ in us is the hope of glory. Let us be reminded what you said, that you are the bread of life. Let us remind us of that hymn, that the blood of Jesus covers all our sins. We are thankful that we are safe inside your camp, rescued from destruction, because you went in and gave your life to, to extract us from the place of judgment. We're humbled and we're grateful and we're thankful that you are alive. And we cannot wait to share this meal with you in eternity. And we long to be with you until that day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.